Well, it's hard to say what my favorite sermon series of all time is in the history of our church. This one's close. Remnant probably takes the cake. We did a series a couple years ago on the life of Joseph called Dreamer. Y'all remember that one? That one's pretty high. But man, Daniel's one I'll never forget. Daniel is one that is so unlikely that this narrative in the Old Testament would speak to us week in and week out the way that it has. And if you are just now joining us, would highly encourage you to go back to the very beginning of this sermon series and watch the sermon, Daniel, Children of Revival. Because the whole time we've been walking through Daniel, we've been viewing this story with a lens that Daniel and his friends were taken into exile in Babylon from their homes in Jerusalem. So the people of God are literally attacked, taken over, and taken away. But Daniel and his friends remained faithful to their God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, in a culture where so many other people around them are just conforming. And the question we asked at the very beginning is why? And the biblical answer, I believe, when you look at it, is that Daniel's parents were a generation marked by revival. There was a king named Josiah who led a nationwide movement to destroy the idols of the nation and return them to unadulterated worship for God. And it looks like a blip on the radar of Israel's history, like cool story, but 25 years later, they're still taken into exile. Things still get worse. Like this actually doesn't result in anything that cool. But what does result from this movement is this generation that stands during exile to remain faithful to God. And so we're reminding ourselves, what if God was doing something similar in our day? Like, what if what God is doing through ACC in the here and now was more about forming a generation that's going to stand in a tougher day than the day that we stand in right now? So the phrase, children of revival, it's starting to break out, and I'm starting to hear it more often, but I just want to make sure everybody knows what that means. That means not us, the people who are watching and being formed by us. It means not us, but the kids over there. You should talk to some of our college students right now. They're like, I feel like God is calling me to just get married at 19 and have babies and raise them at ACC. And I'm like, no, get your degree. And, um, and no, like, like, let God grow you over time. But I want us excited about raising up a generation of Jesus followers. And yes, part of this is motivated by the fact that my kids are five, three, and about to be zero and be born. Like, yes, part of that is because I'm a dad who's looking at the culture around us and going, this is going from bad to worse, and oh yeah, wait, worse again, and worse again, but yet, what if the church stood up as a counterculture, like we were called to do in the first place, chosen exiles, and stood out to raise up a generation to stand against the current that is pushing in so many ways? And so every week in Daniel, we've been interpreting these stories and going, hey, this is what this means for your life. This is how Jesus is actually the story of Daniel, even though it is a book in the Old Testament. Jesus is the story of the whole book, Genesis to Revelation. We've been covering that again and again. But admittedly, the last couple of weeks, things have gotten weird because the first six chapters of Daniel are all narratives and the last six chapters of Daniel are all apocalyptic. Thank you to our youth pastor, Tyler Miller, who brought a word last Sunday. It was so good. Because he came up with all these cool charts that I didn't have to come up with. Put up that first one. So here's how Daniel works. Two halves. The first six and almost all of chapters 1 through 6 are written in Aramaic. Chapters 7 through 12 are written in Hebrew. And they have two very different themes. If you read the first six chapters and then the last six, it feels like they are two different books. That's because Daniel wants you to read it that way. 
The stories culminate in a bunch of prophecies that are apocalyptic in nature because they talk about the end of days. But if you look at this graphic, I love how the little squiggly lines at the top are shown because what you find out is that chapters 1 through 6 and chapter 7 through 12 are both chiasms. They're both, yeah, we've been learning about chiasms every single week. They're both narratives that culminate in a midpoint that you're supposed to pay attention to. So the midpoint of chapters one through six is the moment where it says, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And the midpoint of seven through 12 is this vision that Daniel has of the anointed one who humbles himself in order to usher the people of God into the kingdom of God forever. Two kind of Super chiasms that make up one major overarching. This is the ultimate chiasm. Put up the next one. I love that Tyler showed this last week. And I know a lot of you were out of town, but you really need to go back and listen to that message so that you see the whole structure. Look at this. This is Daniel's, Daniel chapters 1 through 12. You got one arc that runs all the way to the middle and then another arc. So there's this middle moment in Daniel 7 that is the center of the center. And wouldn't you know it, it's Jesus on the throne with every tribe and tongue and nation represented. It's a vision of heaven that the middle of the story is Jesus wins. Past, present, future. And so now we come to the very end, and all I really want to do with this message is be as creative as I possibly can in titling it and delivering it. So this is probably the most creativity you've ever seen from me. The title of our final installment of Daniel, Children of Revival, is The End. It's called the end. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, this is the end. This is the end. Here we go. All right. Birmingham, hope you're with us. Lake Martin, hope you're with us. Birmingham, just hearing stories of what God's doing every week. It's a miracle. Love that y'all are tuned in with us. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a moment because I don't, I don't know if these people in this room actually believe that you guys are real. Because I, like, I talk to you through a screen every week, and it's like, oh, yeah, our people in Birmingham. In a couple of weeks, we're going to put them on the screen live and like, have them join us in a moment so you can go, oh, wow, they're really out there. It's amazing what God's doing up there. I want to give a warning at the beginning of this sermon. We are talking about the end times. We are talking about the return of Jesus. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about hell. We're talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. We're talking about things that are highly debated in the church. We're talking about things that are going to blow some of your minds. We're talking about angels and demons and everything in between. That's what is coming for the next 38 minutes and 29 seconds. And so, you like it? They increased the timer this week because they knew end times. This one must go really, really long. But, but I also want to say that this is not everything that needs to be said about the end time. So don't be looking at this like a catch-all for everything you need to know. What I'm going to try to do as we read the final vision in the book of Daniel is give you what are the non-negotiables that we believe about the end times and what are the things that we need to know about Jesus returning and about heaven and about hell and then what are some of the debatable points that we need to figure out where we stand, but we're also okay if another believer doesn't directly align with our opinion about stuff. So that's where we're going today. And the reason why we're willing to go there is because when you talk about Jesus returning, most Christians are unsure about the details of it or unwilling to actually go there. And that might, that might not sound like a problem, but when you read that quote that we've been reading in this series by Tim Keller, that what we believe about the future directly impacts what we do with our present, it becomes a problem that most Christians have no idea what it looks like for Jesus to come back. Or the idea that they have was framed by a children's book that they read a long time ago. Like If you're clueless about 
what it means for Jesus to come back and what eternity will actually be like, you will live like this life is all there is, which is why most of you are living that way. So when we talk about eternity, we got to be willing to go there, but we also got to be willing to say, hey, if you're a Christian, you need to know these things. These are not just weird theoretical things that you get into when you want to get on the strange side of the Bible over in Revelation. They need to be a part of your knowledge of God so that you don't live in this life like this is all there is. Because huge, huge newsflash if you haven't read this, this is not all there is. And that is good news. That's really good news this morning. And so what we want to do is we want to open our eyes to the more. And this is just a preview of where we're going Easter Sunday in Auburn Arena. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus But we're not going to talk about it like it was just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. We're going to talk about how the resurrection power of Jesus opens up a living hope for us to actually believe and taste and see you will live forever. And coming to grips with that and, and actually waking up to that is the key to being free from the slumber that so many of us are living in in this life. So I'm I'm believing for real impact today, and we're going to hear it from the Word of God. If you brought your Bible, for the last installment of Daniel, Children of Revival, hold it up. Keep it up if you're still believing for a one seed. Um, No, it's like that takes a lot of faith. It's okay, guys. We've got a week to figure it out. Hold them up high. Hold them up high. You love to see it. So awesome. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. So like we said, Daniel has 12 chapters. We're going to hit on the last three. We're not going to really touch Daniel 11 today because it's kind of a repetitive vision that Daniel has had in the past and some of the dreams and visions that we've talked about before. But we're going to look at the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 10 and then all of Daniel 12 because all of these three chapters is one narrative. It's one story and it's the ultimate vision that Daniel has. It's a vision of Jesus' return and what will happen in the very last days. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. I'll give some of you are like, I'm not. I still hear the turning of the pages. All right, Daniel 10, verse 1. Here we go. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Daniel has this vision of a great war, this massive fight, and he says, after I had the vision, I mourned and fasted for three weeks. He's drinking no wine, he's eating no meat, and he said, I used no lotions. And some of the guys in the room are like, Why does that matter? That's the equivalent of saying I did not bathe for three weeks. And yeah, it's kind of nasty. And even some of the guys right now are like, still, no problem with that at all. It's like, please don't do that. Please. As you're reading it, you're like, Daniel is intentionally moving into a state where he is begging God for some type of intervention or some type of an answer because what he has seen has bothered him so much. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. That's a real place. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. And those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. 
I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. Notice this, every time Daniel has an encounter with an angel, the angel speaks to identity before he speaks to activity. Always says, Daniel, you are dearly loved. Daniel, you are highly esteemed. When he said this to me, I stood up trembling, verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Let's go back to the beginning, make sure we're on the same page about this. Go to verse 5. It says, he looked up and there before him was a man dressed in linen. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate about who is this man appearing to Daniel. Because the description of his beauty and kind of awesomeness leads you to believe this is Jesus. Okay? Eyes like fire, voice like a multitude, looking like all of the beauty and the glory of God. This has to be Jesus. We've already seen Jesus show up in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This certainly seems like another appearance of the Son of Man in the story of Daniel. But when you read the details of it, I would highly encourage you to adopt the view that this is not Jesus. This is a very important and prominent angel. And the reason why I say this is not Jesus is because the angel says, Hey, Daniel, from the moment you started seeking understanding, I've been headed your way. I was sent from God to give you an answer, but I got caught up with the prince of Persia, which that's not a movie. That's a real spiritual being, a principality, a.k.a. a demon, who has authority over a specific geographic area. And he's going, I came to give you an answer to your prayer, but it took me 21 days to get through this demon in Persia. Don't let that scare you. But the reason why I say that's not Jesus is because it would not take Jesus 21 days to get through a demon. It wouldn't take him 21 seconds. He would blow right through that demon. You see this in the life of Jesus. There's not one time in his life where he speaks a word to a demon and there's any resistance. There's perfect obedience. So this is an angel who's who caught up in Persia, but he says Michael, who we find out in the book of Jude, is referred to as the archangel. Michael is this significant angel that has a special responsibility to protect the people of Israel. Michael comes, helps him in the fight, and then 21 days later, he goes, Daniel, I finally arrived to give you an explanation. What in the world are we supposed to get from that? Here's what you need to know. When you pray, more is happening than what you see. There are things happening in the unseen world that we cannot explain. We are talking about a phrase that many of us have grown up hearing called spiritual warfare. There's a very real battle happening between light and darkness. It happens through the pages of the scripture, and it is the marker of what will happen in the ultimate final ending, which is really just the beginning of the everlasting story of God. Now, a couple of things on spiritual warfare. Like any other doctrine in the scriptures... There's always a dangerous tendency to land on one side of an extreme or the other. Which normally, when you look at important doctrines in the Bible, landing on one extreme or the other can be equally as harmful. 
You think about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. There's a tension in the scripture that God is in total control and running the whole story, and yet humanity has a responsibility and a free will to make decisions. I don't think either of those things can be totally ruled out, and your ability to figure out what you believe has to center on, okay, I'm not, I'm not willing to just pick a side and run 100 miles an hour in that direction, but I want to stay faithful to the scriptures. What was Jesus? Full of grace and truth. Sounds like two things that can't run together, but yet Jesus is 100% both. He's also 100% God and 100% man. He's got a capacity to take two seemingly competing things and come together as one. Now, in spiritual warfare at ACC, during my time here, I have seen two very dangerous tendencies that are present across this room and across people who are probably watching me right now. One extreme is the dangerous tendency to totally ignore spiritual warfare. And ignoring it, there's people who go, I don't want to think about all that. I don't want to think about demons and powers of darkness. I'm just going to pray to God. I'm just going to be a Christian. I'm just going to do my thing. And here's the thing. Ignoring spiritual warfare will lead you to a level of apathy that will cost you. If you don't wake up recognizing you're in a fight and you're in a battle, you will live like you're neutral and you're not. And you'll live with a lack of awareness that there's someone lying to your kids. There's someone lying to you about your marriage. There's a plan in place to make sure you do not live into the fullness of the calling for which you were created. There's a plan in place to steal from the glory of God that could be given in and through your life if you're paying attention. So ignoring it on that extreme only leads to apathy because you end up missing out and not sobering up to the reality of, oh yeah, I'm in a battle and every day, every prayer matters. But the other extreme, I would say, is obsessing over it. I talk to people, and, and some of them are in this room, who it's like every conversation, it's like, ACC's under attack. We're under attack. Like, the devil, he's after this church. There's demons that have been put on assignment to destroy you, to destroy your marriage, to destroy this whole thing. God hates this thing, or, or, or Satan hates this thing, and God is going to defend it, so we got to pray. And, we gotta, and I hear that, and I'm always like, yeah, okay, of course. Of, of course the powers of darkness are against what we're doing here. But... I want to kind of taper that energy a little bit and just remember a couple of things. Number one, the phrase spiritual warfare is not in the Bible. We made that up. We made that up to explain something that's very real in the scriptures. But whenever we make up something, let's not make it an ultimate thing. Let's just use it as a way of recognizing what's actually happened. But the other side of it is, on the cross, Jesus disarmed the principalities and the powers of darkness. So you know, like, there's no need to be sitting in your room at night trying to discern everything that the devil is doing. There's no need to be afraid going, okay, I wonder if, like, I walk down the wrong corner, if it's, like, taken up by a demon, what's going to happen to me? Here's the thing. If you're covered by the blood of Jesus, the only power the enemy has over you currently are lies that you agree to. That's it. So there's no like secret thing going on. There's no dream pattern that you're like, oh, I just can't get out from under the noose of the enemy. Here's how you get out from under the noose. In Jesus' name, I am free. Like the blood of Jesus disarmed the devil. This wasn't true in the Old Testament. This is true for us as New Testament believers. And so what's our role and responsibility? It's to care. Don't be apathetic and ignore spiritual warfare, but also don't obsess over it so much so that you become like, okay, I wonder what the demons are doing. I wonder what the darkness is doing. No, don't focus on that. Jesus told the disciples, don't focus on the fact that the demons submit to you. Focus on the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Like, Focus on the fact that Christ is in you, and you have two things to do. Make sure you're believing the truth, not lies, and make sure you're devoted to prayer. How do you make sure you're believing the truth? You root your life in the scriptures. So what, what, what weapon does the enemy have? Lies that you agree to. Start with Adam and Eve. His lie that destroyed humanity 
was not a weapon physically to come against the human race. It was an idea about the character and nature of God. He weaponizes ideas. It's what he does. So spiritual warfare is about our ability to have recognition of lies. And the only way to recognize what's a lie is to know what is truth. And so our role is to know this is what's true from the word of God. And that is how we fight our battles against the darkness. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details that this man in Lenin goes into for Daniel. You can get in on those on your own time. Like I said, chapter 11 is complicated because some of it has to do with the last days when Jesus returns again and his second coming, but a lot of it has to do with Jesus' first coming. Here's what's complicated about reading Daniel. For Daniel, Jesus coming and being born to Mary and living his life perfect, dying, rising again, that was future during Daniel. It's past during us. So this is why a lot of, of the prophetic and a lot of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament is complicated for our eyes to read because for them, this was a future day and so is the second coming of Jesus. But for us, that one's past and this one's future. You gotta keep that in mind as you read chapter 11. Let's go to chapter 12. Is this message helpful for anybody so far? Okay, because that was the easy part. We're, we're about to get into the really, 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 really controversial part. People who are... Uh, who are, who are ready to find something to be offended by. Get excited. Here we go. Here we go. Which, if that's you, we, we love you. We just hope you figure out fast enough that you're, you could be called elsewhere. Daniel, I'm just kidding. We want to minister to you, and we love you, and we just, we just want to be a part of changing that culture that's hyper-divisive. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, at that time, Michael, so here, here's the archangel again, the great prince who protects your people, Israel, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this side of the bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the holy river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has, fi has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay. Here we go. 
at the beginning of Daniel 12, you are receiving a description of the ultimate end of the human story and the beginning of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's marked by suffering. Look at verse 1. There will be a time of distress such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. So what do we need to know about the end? Suffering on a massive scale. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's what you need to know about the return of Jesus. Massive suffering happening on a global scale. Jesus returns, and there's a dual resurrection that happens where some rise from the dead to be judged and separated from God forever, everlasting contempt, and some rise, and their names are written in the book of life, and they are ushered into everlasting life or heaven. This is how it works. Right now, if you are in Christ, if you died, your body physically would go into the ground, and your spirit would go to be in the presence of Jesus. If you died right now, and you are not in Christ, your body would go into the ground, and your spirit would go into a form of judgment that's not everlasting judgment. Here's what you need to know. Heaven as it exists today is not the heaven that we will live in forever. At the return of Christ, there is a new heaven which happens on a new earth. It's actually a resurrected form of the earth that we're living on right now, destroyed and rising again, just like the body of Jesus. But there's a sense in which things are incomplete until Jesus returns. When he returns, everybody's spirit that's in the heavenly places or down in what we would call hell today comes back into their body physically. And then there's a division. Jesus backs this up like 15 different times in his teaching. There's a division. There's a separation. Y'all are here and you're here. And that's the end. Now I say that. And if you're still living, good news. Like, same is true, but you don't have to go through the first death, which is why we pray, come Lord Jesus, every single day. I need everyone to look at me. You guys already are. I I feel like I have the attention of the whole room, so I I don't even need to do the look up here moment, even though there are times in my document where it's like, remember, they have the shortest attention span of any generation ever. Tell them to look at you. You guys are already locked in, so it's great. Everyone's locked in here. I hope you're locked in online. We have to talk about this, and I have to clarify something that's not necessarily one of the essential doctrines that you have to agree to to be saved and to consider yourself a Christian. So if you disagree with what I'm about to say, I'm saying that's okay. But I would caution you and actually encourage you to think back on how often I have made a statement like the one I'm about to make and consider that the only reason why I'm presenting what I'm about to present to you as point-blank truth is because I am utterly 100% convinced about what I'm about to share with you. So it's okay if you disagree, but at the same time, I would would be very careful and make sure you are read up in disagreeing with what I'm about to say. The return of Jesus in our day has become something that is so misunderstood and, and, and I would say grossly misinterpreted because of what a lot of us were taught growing up. And if you were like me, You grew up being taught that when Jesus returns, there is a worldwide rapture where Christians disappear and non-Christians are left for a seven-year period of suffering on the earth, that we disappear for seven years and then we come back for the 1,000-year reign of Christ. This was popularized by books called Left Behind, 
And I don't want to speak heavily against Left Behind. Even as I told my wife that I was talking about this this week, she's like, hey, I read Left Behind as a kid, and it actually like, made me really aware of God. Left Behind, it can do a lot of good. Kirk Cameron's great. Like, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not anti-Left Behind. But the popularized idea that Christians are going to be raptured in a sense that we will disappear from our physical existence and non-Christians will be left is unbiblical and not true. That is never going to happen. And immediately, as I say it, if you know your Bible, you're going, wait, didn't Jesus say two will be going into a field and then only one will come back? Yes, he did. If you read the context of Matthew 24 and 25, which is all about the end times, when Jesus gives those illustrations, the purpose is not the details of how we will be raptured. The purpose is an alertness and a readiness that it's going to happen when you don't expect it. What you need to know about the return of Christ is that he comes like a thief in the night. And those illustrations that he gives about being taken in a moment are not intended to tell you, hey, you might disappear any moment. They're intended to tell you, be alert, be ready. The parable of the 10 virgins, like bring your preparation to the party and know that Jesus could return at any point. If you're looking for the signs that Jesus names in Matthew and you're looking for worldwide suffering to be happening, you got it in 2022. Be on alert. Jesus is coming soon. That's the message. And so, wait, how did that idea become popular? Because we took Jesus' words out of context. We took one verse in Revelation 3 that's about a church escaping trial and tribulation and pulled that so far out of context. And then there was a theological tribe that grew in the 20th century called dispensationalism that made this view very popular for people to believe you're going to disappear, seven years of suffering, thousand-year reign of Jesus, and then Jesus comes back. And I'm I'm just up here as your leader telling you that is not what we believe. And and by the way, it's not what scripture teaches. What scripture actually teaches is that the return of Jesus is a one-time thing. The trumpet sounds, he comes on the clouds, we are called up to be with him forever, and there is a judgment pronounced and a separation that happens for forever. So you might be asking, well, where did they come up with the seven years of tribulation? They came up with it on the weird numbers in Daniel. Did you read the weird numbers at the end that were about the 1,200 and something days and the 1,300 and something days? Well, if you add that up, that equals about seven years. But in that same phrase, Daniel talks about the abomination that causes desolation, which happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed during the Roman Empire. So once again, you've got competing themes here of the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. I do not know what those numbers mean at the end of Daniel. I have no idea. And by the way, anyone who tells you that they're fully sure, they're not fully sure. I think those numbers will make perfect sense when the time does come, but I do not think it means that there is a seven-year period of suffering that Christians will escape from. I think what what the New Testament teaches is that there's massive suffering happening in the world, but there's also massive revival happening at the same time. So what is the 1,000 year reign of Jesus? There's three different views about that. It's called premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. You you can know by the end of this which one I am. Premillennial is what I just talked about, that you believe there's a rapture, we disappear, but then we come back and we reign on the earth, but Satan's still around and it's some kind of 1,000 year reign, but yet battle, he's sort of bound. And then there's a big Armageddon battle and then Satan's judge and we're separated and heaven and hell exist. That's premillennialism and that's not where we are. Uh, Postmillennialism is the idea that there's there's an exactly 1,000 year reign of Jesus And then there's the full fruition of everything that's going to happen forever, which is not a bad view, but my view lines up with what's called amillennialism, which is that the thousand-year reign of Jesus does not have to be exactly 1,000 years. In the scriptures, the number 1,000 is almost always symbolic of just a lot, a lot of years. 
So for me, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus is not exactly 1,000 years, and it doesn't have to happen after Jesus comes back. In other words, I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches, we are living in the 1,000-year reign of Jesus right now because Satan was bound when Jesus died and rose again. So you read in Revelation about the dragon who is bound but then set free. That, that, I believe that's the era we're living in. He's bound and can't touch those that are covered by the blood. But, oh, he's wreaking havoc and lying to people like crazy right now. And so at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, which it's, it just makes being alive so tragic and so amazing. It's such a good explanation for the wars that are happening in our world, but yet a room like this that's excited about the kingdom of God. How is it that one kingdom is taking ground and there's so much joy, but yet it feels like one kingdom is never going to go away? It's because he's lying at a faster pace because the devil knows his time is short. The thousand-year reign of Jesus is right here, right now through the church, and here's how it works. Let's put these five points on the screen. Don't worry, they're not the five points of Calvinism. Um, you got, this is, this is the end. This is the end. The 1,000-year reign of Christ. And I put that in quotes because, it, like I said, it doesn't have to be 1,000 years. The second coming of Jesus, what is that marked by? Him coming on the clouds, resurrection for everybody, not just people who are in Christ. Everybody lives forever. And then a separation at the judgment, and then the introduction of heaven and hell in their Fullness, like I said, the form of heaven and the form of hell are not complete until this moment. So I know I just said a lot. As you look at the screen, and as I know a lot of you are taking notes, and some of you, your brains are exploding. If you're confused right now, welcome to the club. These are complicated things to talk about. But they're as real as the person sitting next to you right now. And that's why they can't afford to be these weird theoretical truths that some Christians understand and some don't. No, if you are in Christ, you need to know this stuff is real. You are living in the 1,000-year reign of Jesus right now, and you have an opportunity to be a part of the end-time story of Jesus coming back for his bride. None of us knows when that is going to happen, but we do know it's going to be at a time of massive suffering, massive revival, and when a lot of people are not ready for it. And when he comes, only those who are in Christ are written in the book of life. Now, I want to go ahead and give a disclaimer. After the 11 o'clock gathering and the 6 o'clock gathering today, I'm going to do a live Q&A because I didn't feel good teaching this without an opportunity for some dialogue. I realize that's unfair for all of you who are joining us through a screen and for all of you at the 9 right now. It's just because there's another service coming in right after you. It'll probably happen around 1230 and 7.30 if you want to come back. I just want to be available because I, I can't just throw out stuff like that without you being able to work that out in real time. And there's not enough opportunities like that at this church with this church being so large. So that's what we're going to do. Read Daniel 12.8, and this will make you feel a lot better. When Daniel's hearing this conversation between these angels, watch what he says. I heard, but I did not understand. Anybody feel that way reading about the end times? Anybody ever feel that way around your spouse? You're like, I heard you. I, don't, I didn't understand what you just said. Can you say that again? I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? This is Daniel asking the angels to make it plain. He's going, okay, times and times and a half. What does that? I heard you, but I don't understand what you're saying. When will all this be? And the angel's response to Daniel twice is, seal up the scroll and go your way. In fact, the very end of Daniel 12 is go your way till the end, which means don't expect any more explanations until your life is over. Daniel, you've got all that you need as you are right now. Go your way till the end. So what does that tell you? That tells you that to the degree that we can understand, we're called to be faithful with what we've been entrusted with, but also there's a line where you go, it's okay that I don't understand everything. And it's okay that it doesn't all make sense. I'm supposed to be faithful with what has been said. So to finish this sermon, I'm going to give you 
three truths from Daniel 10, 11, and 12 that are absolute non-negotiables. What I said earlier, sorry, I almost hit my Bible off because I'm like shaking up here. I, what I said earlier, what I said earlier, it is negotiable. If you disagree with some of what I brought, you, that doesn't mean that you're not a believer. I would just encourage you to read up on it. The next three are non-negotiable. These are the truths that we're supposed to seal up and absolutely hold on to for our everyday lives. Number one, are y'all ready? Number one, this is good. Heaven is real, heaven is forever. Heaven is for real. Not because a boy went there when he had a dream and wrote a book about it. Heaven became really popular a couple years ago when that book was written, and I'm not hating on that, but you don't have confidence that heaven is real because a kid had a dream. You have confidence that heaven is real because Jesus said it was, and then he died and rose again to prove it. And so we believe the scriptures because we believe Jesus. The scriptures are true. And we base our belief that the scriptures are true on the fact that Jesus proved the truth of the scriptures by claiming I'm the way, the truth, and the life, dying and rising again. So why is heaven real? Because Jesus believed in it. One of Jesus' most controversial views during his life was his view about resurrection. They tried to make a fool out of him one time, asking him, hey, this guy married this girl, but then he died, and then his brother married her, and then he died, and his brother married her, and seven of them died. And who's, who's married to her in heaven? And they're all laughing, the Sadducees kind of elbowing each other, like this whole resurrection thing is so dumb. And Jesus just point blank looks at him, and he goes, there's no resurrection. Everybody just rises, and they're married to God. Like, what, what are you talking about? Jesus does not even engage that talk. In fact, as he responds to them, he goes, he, he's basically calling out their ignorance and going, if God is still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, how can he be the God of the dead when he claims to be the God of the living? In other words, he's saying, Abraham's still alive. Isaac's still alive. Jacob's still alive because humans were created to live, not die. Every funeral that you have been to is a tragedy, even if they live for 95 years, because human beings were not created to decay and die. We were created to live. It's why at every funeral you're at, something feels off on the inside that you're like, this isn't right. I don't feel like this is what we were made for. That's totally the reason why Jesus came and died and rose in your place, to put an end to death and to usher you into heaven forever and ever. This is real, and, and if we actually believe that this is the case, it informs everything that we do in this life as believers. If heaven is actually real and heaven is going to go on, just think about it in your mind. Think about being in heaven, and as time goes by, it doesn't even exist anymore, you are no closer to the end than when you started. It endures forever and ever, as the scriptures say. Our brains don't even have capacity to create that kind of time. People of God, that is the relationship with God you were created for from the beginning. And God has seen to it that even though that's impossible because of your sin, Jesus has provided a way. If you are in Christ, if you hold on to the blood of Jesus and you base your life on him, you will go to heaven and you will live. Not just sing. There will be singing. There will be eating. There will be relationships. There'll be jobs. There'll be homes. There'll be technology. There'll be massive amounts of relationships happening. We're going to live forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Everybody who, every, every time I go off on a tangent like that, people are like, where are you getting this from? And I'm like, 1 Corinthians 15. And then they read it and they come back to me and they're like, yeah, it's all right there. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'm like, we should read this. It's actually awesome. That's what we're talking about on Easter, by the way. Heaven is real. Heaven is forever. Number two, this one's painful. Equally is true. Hell is real. Hell is forever. 
Heaven is real, heaven is forever, hell is real, hell is forever. The theme of the second coming of Jesus is a rising of all people to be separated forever. And right there in Daniel 12, it said everlasting life and everlasting contempt. And I'm not saying this to be a smart aleck, but because we have people who legitimately believe hell is just for a short period of time to kind of punish people for what they did wrong, and then we'll get, we'll get them back into heaven. God will make a way. No, 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 no. The word everlasting means everlasting. doesn't stop. Forever. And part of the reason why our brains have such a problem with hell is, number one, because we believe we have more justice than God. And number two, we believe in a misrepresentation of hell that we have read into our minds and that it has been passed down to us. We believe that people who go to hell are, are like burning and being punished and like begging God for a second chance. Our picture of hell is this like, let us in, let us out of this torment, let us out of this suffering. When in reality, hell is the sinful nature given over by God. So God gives people over in their sin and what you need to understand about hell is everyone in hell for all of eternity is actively choosing to be there. As crazy as this sounds, because of our sin, we do not have the capacity to want or to desire God. God is the one who has to, earth, has to birth that and grow that in us. So in hell, you have people who are suffering Absent of God, think of every evil you can imagine, every war, every rape, every cancer, every difficulty, think of it, all of eternity on display, but you have people actively participating in it who wouldn't choose otherwise if they had the opportunity. Think of a drug addict, if you've got addiction in your home, and, and, and I do in my family's past, you know what I'm talking about. It's when you lose the person, and even though the person wants to get better, they can't, because the noose is just so tight. You talk to somebody who's really in deep on some like strong drugs and you ask them, do you want to be free from this? They would look at you like you're crazy and go, of course I do. Look at me. I can't. I'm going to get more and this is all I'm going to do forever and ever. They're just dominated by their addiction. That's a picture of the sinful nature. You have people who are in under the wrath of God forever and ever and having no way out because in of their sin without Jesus, there is none. And so our picture of hell, it's got to sober us up and it's got to set us on mission forever. But we also don't need to be so apologetic when we bring it up that we go, hey, I know this is kind of a weird side of God that we got to talk about. No, the justice of God is beautiful because it makes his mercy burn ever brighter. The fact that God's justice led him to his son dying in our place tells us that God is very different than us and operates with a level of justice on a whole nother level than our brains, but the level of operation that's happening is rooted in mercy, not wrath. God longs to be gracious. The scripture says he wants that all men will be saved. But make no mistake about it, if your name is not written in the book of life, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, if, to, to use Old Testament language, the blood of the lamb does not cover the doorframe of your heart, you will go to hell forever. And, and I, even as I say that right now, I just wrote myself out of being invited to who knows what pastor event or whatever because this is becoming controversial and it's basic. If you read about the words of Jesus, he talks about this all the time and he uses the word eternal and he talks about fire and he talks about separation. Jesus did not apologize for talking about hell and neither will we. But it will not make us arrogant, it will make us humble. Yeah. 
and it will make us love people even more so. And here, here's the key thing you need to understand. You need to understand those people who are in hell forever, who have no way back to God, even if they tried, that's us without the grace of God, y'all. You can't view them as, oh, they're the problem, and I've, I've got something that they don't have. No, were it not for the grace of Jesus, that would be your eternity, and that would be mine, and it would be rightfully so. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for a second chance. May these realities become real in our lives. Heaven is real. Heaven is forever. Hell is real. Hell is forever. Number three, this is the best one. Suffering will end. Suffering will be worth it. Suffering will end. Suffering will be worth it. When you read about the massive amount of suffering happening when Jesus returns, it just makes it ever more clear why he is coming back for his bride and why the kingdom of God shines so much brighter than the kingdom of man. All suffering will end from the smallest to the largest. And here's what this is supposed to do. Y'all look up here, don't miss this. The hope of heaven is not supposed to make us weird Christians who plot out the return of Christ on a whiteboard. The hope of heaven is supposed to make us people who are faithful in the now because we are motivated by hope in the future. That all suffering will end. You know you can survive a lot of suffering if you believe it will end and you believe it will be worth it. Even on basic things. Like you can survive it in a workout if you believe this is going to be over soon and at the end this is going to be worth it. It's what I have to think about often. Especially when I work out with my nine-month pregnant wife and she outperforms me. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? It will end. It will be worth it. You can survive in a job if you believe even though my relationship with my boss is so complicated, this will end, and on the back end, there will be a blessing. I think about Courtney, and we are hoping to give birth to this baby girl this week. I say we, she. Um, and, and, and so we're leaned in in prayer, but here's the thing. She told me, I was asking her, I was like, are you not freaked out? You've done this twice. You know how painful this is. Are you not like just, and she's like, no, not at all. I don't think about the pain in the moment. All I think about is that it will only last a little while, and once it's over, I would rather have what I have in that moment than what I have before. This is the picture of eternity that we keep our eyes on. This will end, and because of the eternal weight of glory in heaven, it will be worth it. I want to read a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, and I just want hope to rise in this room. Revelation 21, verse 1. You can just read it with me. Then I saw, this is John, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Isn't that crazy? Heaven is not us going up to heaven, it's heaven coming down. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. That sound familiar? He likes to say that. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. These truths are non-negotiable, but they are hope-giving. And when we set our eyes on, wait a minute, that's the end of the story, it not only motivates faithfulness in the now, it lights a fire beneath us because we have a hope in heaven to go. He's going to come down and be enthroned forever. There's no more crying, no more death, no more suffering. It is over, it is done. Here's the beginning, middle, and end of the story, ACC, Jesus wins. And if you want that to be your story, it's up to you. You are accountable for the word that you are hearing today, and I believe the only response is faith. Let's rise to our feet right now. The band's gonna come up here and sing a song about heaven, and we're gonna believe God's gonna do in this room what we're reading about on these pages. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that this message would land on fertile ground. That as this word goes out, it wouldn't grow into division, it wouldn't grow into fear, it would only grow into faith. That what we believe about heaven is real and that God, you are doing more in our day than we realize. You're doing more in our lives than we realize. So take all of the glory from the worship that we offer right now with eyes set on heaven, with hearts that are convinced of eternity. God, move as we sing. Move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.